My name is Greg Seeger. Uh, this is my wife, Candy. Hi. Uh, we're both registered nurses. We, uh, as I told the last group, we don't have a whole lot of fancy credentials after our name. We just have a heart for missions and a heart for service. And uh, we did a lot of short-term missions over a, a number of years. We were running about six to eight mission teams a year. And then we went to work full-time for a group called Mercy Ships International, some of you may know. Of, and we worked on their health programs and specifically trying to figure out how we can develop programs that would that we could take short-term teams and, and develop some long-term strategies on how to uh, how to kind of fit them into the bigger picture, let's say. And uh, that's kind of what we want to talk about today. We wrote a little booklet called Operating Responsible Short-Term Healthcare Missions. Of we have a few printed here of uh, probably about 50 or 60 of them. Uh, we, we accept donations, but if you promise me you read it, I'll give it to you. <laughs> Although you may not want to after you see our presentation today. Uh, okay. Uh, we found an organization called the Christian Health Service. And Sorry, thank you. We found an organization called the Christian Health Service, and that kind of came out of a felt need in uh, in missions uh, in and out of this conference. Really, how do we kind of develop some some good mission models for best practices, and and what is responsible short-term missions look like, and. And so what we what we figured out was about 95% of the problems associated with short-term missions can be eliminated just by connecting with local health systems. So that's kind of why we started developing this organization was to take uh, providers like yourselves and connect them with mission hospitals and functional health programs in developing communities. I have to get, we have to get real close for you all to hear me. <laughs> um, you know what? How many of you have gone on a short-term trip? Great. How many of you have walked away going, this doesn't feel right? Okay. How many of you think it can be done better? Everybody. Yeah. And, and we're learning every, every trip we take. We learn something new and come up with something better and come up with something we don't ever want to do again. A lot of this is learning from our mistakes. Um, and so please know that we say all of this with a very humble heart. The Lord really, really convicted us in so many ways, and that's why we're here. So I just want you to think about that as we're going along. Since most of you have gone on a trip, some of these ideas will be... Um, oh, don't leave me here to talk all by myself. Okay, you're all by, you're all by yourself now. <laughs> Um, some of these ideas will be things that you can't foresee happening, and some of these ideas we put into action and have actually worked. So um, just know that you know, a lot of this has been tried and true and tested, and we have made it work. And um, So there is a way. You just have to leave it in the good Lord's hands. He is much bigger than all of us. We're gonna, today we're going to review some of the problems associated with medical missions. And, and there are problems, and, and sometimes there's a potential for harm, and it's a potential for harm that's much bigger than sometimes we want to admit as a community that has a heart to serve those in need. 
But in order to mitigate that, those potential problems, we have to kind of face them. And we have to say, okay, what are the problems so that we can make sure this doesn't happen? Uh, we want to develop. And one of the things I want to help you guys do today is develop some strategies for short-term missions. You know, what, is, what, is, what do responsible missions look like? You know, we want to look for ways to plug into what God is already doing in, in a community of what is God doing through a facility in that community. And how do we partner with those health programs and mission programs and hospitals that already exist? We want to know the WHO standards of, and what those guidelines are for practice in developing communities. Because health practice looks different, whether nursing or, or, or medical. It looks a lot different uh, in, in a resource-poor environment. And even the standards, things like giving 200,000 units of vitamin A, international units, how many times have you done that here in this country? But that's, that's something that WHO says every child should have. Uh, every child you see should get that. And, and so there's a lot of things that we don't do here that we need to learn how to do. There's on our website, and I put the website there, but uh, we have got lots of contact information around here, and we have a booth. But on the website, we have, if you go to the left side, there's an IMCI training program. And you click on that. And you can download the entire WHO UNICEF of Child Standards Training Program. It's, interact, it's an interactive tutorial, probably about six to eight hours worth of work. If we send a volunteer, we make sure that they have done that uh, just to understand what the paperwork looks like and kind of what the, what, what the international standards are for healthcare in these communities. Uh, if you work as part of a short-term, you know, short-term mission, medical team, you want to document patient, all your patient encounters. And uh, we've got examples of that documentation for children. Uh, I think over here, do we send Everybody them all out? Everybody has one. Okay. Uh, and those are really good resources. Of, and, again, on the website, there's a couple things. Oh, this, is the, uh, this is the child health one from WHO. This is right out of the IMCI chart booklet. You can also get that off our website. And the IMCI handbook. IMCI stands for Integrated Management of Childhood Illness, and it's the standard for treating kids in, in, in developing communities. Uh, we just did a whole thing on that in another area, so I'm not going to go into it in too detail. But just to let you know that if you're interested in learning more about the program, come and see us, and I can connect you with the resources. Primary goals, you know, in that we seek to address in global health issues are really centered around the Millennium Development Goals. And I covered a little bit of this. I'm not going to, if you were in the last session, don't worry, you're not going to see too many repeat slides here, but this is one of them. <laughs> uh, goal four is to reduce under five mortality by two-thirds by 2015. And, and that's one of those goals that's very responsive to low-cost community health education programs. We should have education and counseling uh, on health education issues as part of all of our our short-term uh, teams. I tell physicians that think about ACT. You want to act in communities. You want to assess, counsel, and teach, and then treat. Assess, counsel, and then treat. Because if you think about it that way, you'll always come out, they'll always come out with some basic health education guidelines, you know, or some, some basic health information that really could, could mean a lot to them long-term. We want to talk about the health development process and how short-term missions affect the health development process. Health development is a process of empowering individuals and communities to achieve an improved state of health and well-being. In order to understand this process, it's important to view health as a continuum. Short-term programs are only one component of a much larger picture. 
when partnering with long-term efforts, short-term missions can play a a good role in facilitating health development and combating global health problems. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but I'm hoping that we can make sense out of it here shortly. The question we have to ask is, are short-term teams a help or a hindrance? And I'm hesitant to ask that question, but I think it's one that we have to ask uh, if we want to be honest about what we're doing and how we're doing it. Too often, the end result is of, in health systems is that, or when we, when we go into these communities, is that sometimes we diminish confidence in the local health system. And, and what we're going to try to help you understand is how to maybe build the local health systems. Uh, and just to let you know that short-term missions are, are amazing in a lot of ways. Look how many people you get to touch and talk to, and you get to be the hands of Christ. And that in itself is a beautiful thing. It's just I think sometimes we need to adjust how we do that so that it is in a way that honors and glorifies God and that we can, um, as medical professionals, do the best that we can do for them. Like when I work here in the States, I try to do the best I can in my job here, but I do it differently when I go into another country because culturally it has to be different. So that's what we're just trying to open eyes and minds and let you get the brain thinking about better ways to do that and that so that we can be a help to the local health um, departments. I'm going to let you do this next one. Which this is, is a case presentation that um, it's a true story and a lot of our presentations, um, if you, we've repeated a couple times, um, we get new ones every once in a while. So if you've got any good ones, we'd love to hear it and we can use it. A general medical team is requested by a missionary in Guatemala the missionary's home church in Vancouver had several doctors, nurses, and non-medical volunteers that went in response to the request. The team was directed by the missionary to three communities where they held clinics and local churches. How many of you held clinics and local churches? Yeah. <laughs> Been there. They saw 200 patients per day for seven days in a rural area that they believed had very limited access to health care. However, on the second day, Dr. Hernandez, the primary health care provider for the area, arrived to extend his welcome to the team. His clinic was two blocks away. Later, a translator stated that Dr. Hernandez, his cousin, may have to close his clinic because he is having difficulty making ends meet. Apparently, volunteer medical teams were coming to the area every two to three months, and each time they did, his business dropped off significantly for the weeks to follow. In addition, his office closed during the time. The teams were there. No one wants to go to a better, go to a local doctor. Everyone knows the gringo doctors are so much better. At church on Sunday, you run into Dr. Hernandez again and learn he is a board certified. He is board certified in internal medicine and did his fellowship in public health with the Pan American Health Organization in Washington, D.C. True story. Uh, and it unfortunately repeats itself over and over and over again. Uh, and sometimes it's an assessment issue where we didn't assess to see. Sometimes when we're invited by a pastor, uh, we, we just automatically assume that the pastor's kind of really coordinated this with the local health establishment, and oftentimes that's not the case. And, and especially in Latin America, if you're practicing in Latin America, there's, good, there's, there's a relatively good health of at least a good number of healthcare providers. Maybe the infrastructure isn't what you know we would love to see, but you know they're there, and we want to uh, 
to practice in their environment in a way that, that respects their dignity and, and what they're doing for their community. So we've got to be careful about how we adjust this. So I'll give you an example. We, were, we came back from Haiti recently, and I, I had a long meeting with a hospital down there about sending uh, surgical staff and, and supplementary staff in, in that facility. And it was not too long after the earthquake. And they were, for three months after the earthquake, the government mandated that all facilities provide free care. Now, this was probably one of the more functional hospitals in Haiti. Great operating room, uh, very functional anesthesia equipment, very functional recovery uh, room. I mean, great. I, I mean, by third world standards, this is a great hospital. And uh, I was very sad to find out that they are in danger of closing right now. And the reason they're in danger of closing is because there's so many volunteer medical teams serving around in, in the surrounding community uh, that why do they're competing for business, basically, against free care uh, and against doctors who the community at least perceives as more qualified. So their census has dropped down to, you know, bare minimum, and they're really having a hard time right now, and they're struggling. For three months, they were able to provide the free care. As soon as they went back to providing, you know, fee-for-service, which all hospitals in these communities, most of them need to do in order to, to, to be sustainable. As soon as they went back to fee-for-service, their census dropped off to the point where they're really struggling right now. Uh, one of the things that we're trying to do is feed them some, you know, key surgical providers that may help kind of bolster, you know, their patient census, but uh, it, it's it's a real challenge, and we want to think through the economic impact of of what we're doing. We also, I'm sorry, go. Uh, a couple thoughts on this. Um, one thing that we always do is we would have hired him to work with us for the week, and then we would have a physician to follow up care with, and we always have a local physician with us working with us or a hospital physician. I just wanted to point out your community assessment form that could be a valuable form for this um, kind of situation where you get this information long before you go into the community and you're aware of what they have. We have to learn to ask better questions. I think we're only going to find the solutions of, to some of these complex issues when we begin to ask the questions. And, you know... The big question here is what questions do we need to ask? Because we wrote a few questions down and kind of contained them within the context of this presentation. Uh, are the skills, knowledge, and expertise of local providers being uh, utilized and acknowledged in your, in your medical groups? That's something you want to think about. You want to include them, and you want to, you want to promote their expertise and, and, and really affirm their professionalism because, you know what, they came up through, through an education system that would break a lot of us. Of, you know, and they came. They did it out of great poverty, and, and they they deserve our, our utmost respect. Of and, and we want to come alongside them in a way that that respects their dignity and, and, and edifies them. Of are you fully aware of the government and non-government health services being provided in the area? That goes back to assessment. You know, do volunteer medical teams that you know adversely affect physicians economically? I think we kind of talked about that. Here's another concept we need to talk about when we start going in to do healthcare in developing communities. This is a concept some of, it are, some of us are familiar with and some of us aren't, but it's, it's a word we all need to know. So, because being aware, we can, we can solve a lot of problems. Paternalism. Paternalism is defined as an attitude of a person that subordinates another as if they should be controlled in a fatherly way uh, for their own good. Sadly, the attitude of many short-term medical volunteers is that their training skills, knowledge, and ability is superior to that of local providers. 
In reality, however, local providers are usually more capable of providing primary care in their communities because they've been trained to function in resource-poor environments, and we have not. Uh, so we just want to think about how our attitudes affect, uh, affect those we're partnering with. And I don't mean that bad, and we don't all do this, and only, you know, it's probably not a, always a, a problem, but it's something we want to be aware of so that we can mitigate that potential relationship issue. We want to be relational. We want to be, you know, we want to be the hands and feet of Christ. And to do that, we really have to work alongside these local partners and edify them and, and, and respect uh, how well they do what they do because most of the time it would kill us to practice long-term in that environment. You know, of New medical volunteers often embark on, on their first mission trip with a mindset, you know, we're going to go help the poor people and they can't really help themselves. And uh, it, it, It's a common thought process and it's, and it's really well-intentioned, although it lacks really the, the proper Christian perspective that really edifies and respects human dignity. And that's what we want to do. No one clearly understands the effect of the human spirit on self-worth of a person forced to receive charity. What we do know is that helping people is about encouragement, edification, facilitating the achievement of self-sufficiency. If not well thought out, our efforts can make people feel incapable of meeting their own needs and indebted to our benevolence. And as missionaries and, and as believers in Christ and followers of Christ, our heart needs to be about creating a dependency on God and not on anything else. So just, and it's not an accusation and it's not anything like that. It's just saying, let's think about how we're perceived by the community so that we can, we can be humble in our approach. I'm going to go back to that. Yeah, um, and I just wanted to interject a couple things there. We recently ran into um, some issues on a team we were taking because in the community we were working, the Christian women all wore skirts. The American women were refusing. Um, what a, what I, I, I was blowing my mind. I'm not a skirt wearer. I, I'm a blue jean cowboy, cowgirl kind of girl. But you know what? I went and bought skirts. And it really was sad to think that people had that much pride that they would not be willing to culturally fit in to where we were, you know, you, you need to fit in wherever you go. So those are the kind of things, too, with paternalism that broke break my heart because I watched a very well-intentioned church group go down and build a school for the orphanage. Um, there were hundreds, hundreds of men, capable men, sitting around doing nothing. And in my mind, I'm thinking, why aren't we paying those men? and lifting them up to take care of themselves. The physician we were working with said, we have 280 NGOs in this country. Why aren't we fixed? And we all know why they're not fixed. It's because they don't know how to do it for themselves. And all we keep doing, they readily stand with their hands out. And it's a heartbreaking thing. What we need to be doing is really teaching them how to help themselves. Yeah, Haiti's a tough place. And, and it's a tough place not because of the poverty sometimes, but because of the geographic location to a lot of well-intentioned, warm-hearted Christians. <laughs> because we, we've dumped so much massive amounts of aid into that country. Uh, and, and we've done it 
so well-intentioned and with, with the greatest hearts of charity, but sometimes the lack of, of understanding about where we should, how we should be thinking about building self-sufficiency. Oh, I'm going backwards, aren't I? Sorry. I'm like, wait a minute. I think I saw that slide earlier. Okay. Other questions we want to we want to keep in mind: uh, Whose needs are we trying to serve? Is it your teams or the communities? That's a tough question, but it's one that we all have to answer. And sometimes it is about the team a little bit. You know, it's what is the team going to take away from this community as far as growth? You know, their their heart for missions, their, their passion for for uh, serving the poor. And, and there's some vital things w- within that context. But we have to ask the question so we can be honest with ourselves about our motivations and 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 really, you know, serving God in, a, in an honoring way. Uh, is the provision of medical care by your team viewed as conditional upon hearing and or responding to a gospel message? You've got to... Not that that's... We, we all want to share our faith, and that's very important, part in context of what we do. But we don't want it, the community to perceive that if they don't respond or accept our message, that they're not going to get health care. Because, you know, our heart is to say, you know, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and that's not what Jesus would have done. So we want them to see us in the light of God, not as a, a quid pro quo. And in some, just the way you can geographically lay out sometimes, so you want to think through how your flow patterns go through your clinics, because that can that can kind of create inappropriate perceptions. Have you assessed whether or not your methods of conducting medical outreach may be paternalistic, contributing to dependency? We want to ask ourselves the questions. They're hard questions, and uh, you know, I hope you don't stone me for asking them. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Uh, is there a way to collect the data from your short-term team to implement health programming either directly or through partners? Uh, that, that's vitally important. Uh, if we're going into these communities, you have the opportunity to see, if you're going to do like a health, health outreach, you, you're going to see how many kids in that community. And you're going to have a real good measure of what the disease prevalence is if, you, if we just document and if we use the, the basic documentation WHO provides, you'll have all that information. And then you can go to the, the health system or the closest health system and say, look, these are some of the problems that we identified. Can we work with you to help fix some of these things? And you're going to get invited in. By collecting that information, they're going to invite you to be a part of what they're doing. Are you assessing pregnant mothers for high-risk pregnancies and connecting them to... Uh, all right, I guess I'll give it to you. <laughs> Sorry. Um, another great thought is, and this is something that happened on one of our trips, is we were educating the group. You know, we were doing our education. This is how we're going to do our clinic. We were teaching them the IMCI. And one by one, the translators came in. And they were so interested, and we ended up teaching them so that they could teach others in their community. So utilize your translators. This is their... Obviously, intelligent if they've got bilingual going there. So <laughs> um, let's utilize them. They were so excited that they were going to have the opportunity to share information with their own people. 
Yeah, by the time the end of the week, they all knew the IMCA protocols probably better than the med students we had down there working. <laughs> it was really great. We didn't even have to say anything. <laughs> uh, one of the things when we talk about a community assessment, we want to assess kids, and we want to record that data. You also want to assess pregnant moms because you can make a big difference in this area if we can spot the, the moms that have gestational diabetes or hypertension uh, or pregnancy-induced hypertension. And if we can get them to uh, deliver in a hospital setting, and we just that's all we want them to know. If, you know, if they're in a high-risk category, you want to spot the high-risk ones, and you want to get them into a hospital setting to deliver that baby. Uh, because you know those are the ones that are going to be part of that 500,000 mothers a year that die related to preg- you know childbirth, and, and we do find them. You know it's almost inevitable we'll find two or three every trip that are definitely definitively high risk pregnancies that we counsel and we make sure they have the resources to get to and deliver in a hospital. Okay, now this is the hardest question we're going to have to answer. Uh, the most important question is our short-term medical mission groups potentially harmful to the community that they seek to serve? Don't walk too far. The general medical team was serving a village community in Honduras. Maria, a 29-year-old mother of five, arrived at the clinic pharmacy to receive her medication after having her entire family seen by one of the physicians. Maria had three prescriptions for herself, and each child received prescriptions for parasite medications and vitamins. In addition, three of the children were febrile, and two had been diagnosed with ear infections and one with strep throat. Each of them also received Tylenol and antibiotics. Dosages were carefully explained to Maria for the 12-year-old, 6-year-old, and 6-month-old children. Less than a week after the team left the country, Maria's 6-month-old child was brought to the public hospital in the region in liver failure and died. It was found that Maria mixed up the dosages of medications and had been overdosing her six-month-old with Tylenol for the entire week. True story. True story. Can you see how this can happen in some of the medical outreaches that we do when we send a young mom who's trying to hurt her four children in front of a translator, in front of you know, oftentimes a, uh, you know, either a nurse or, or not even a medical personnel trying to give them instructions on medicine for three or four different children, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, 50 or 60 people waiting behind her, she's not going to absorb it. So one of the WHO standards is, uh, you know, very specific and addresses this, but I, I'll talk about that here in a minute. But some of the more questions we want to ask of, uh, does your team know and adhere to WHO standards of practice? Because that will help you eliminate some of these core problems. Uh, does your team adhere to acceptable pharmaceutical standards for developing communities and dispense unused medications and equipment? I'm going to touch on that a little bit. And then the last one is about the weights, heights, and immunizations that we already talked about. Pharmacovigilance. This is a word that all short-term medical teams need to know. See, without established safety guidelines, dispensing thousands of dollars worth uh, of medications or pharmaceuticals in developing communities has a greater potential for harm than help. I honestly believe that. WHO says it this way. They say pharmacovigilance should be an integral part of every health program that uses medicines in order to prevent potential tragedies. And that's so true. Uh, pharmacovigilance is a bigger concept. It deals with supply of medicine and a lot of other things. But some of the core components of it are really medication safety. 
we talk about pharmacovigilance, we need to look at how we dispense those medicines as well. Okay. How many of you Ziploc bags? We've done it, too. We've done it. Uh, according to WHO, 125 child deaths each day as a result of uh, poisonings, the majority of which are pharmaceutical ingestions. Don't let this happen as a result of your medical mission work. It's, it's too cheap to buy child-safe containers. 100 bucks will give you enough for an outreach. You know, and if you need help, if yeah, if if you need help finding the places where you can get them real cheap, email me, and I'll I'll give you a whole bunch of links. But yeah, they're 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 cheap, and and it's not worth because you got to remember, mom is going to take that zip those four Ziploc baggies, okay? She's going to go back to her mud hut with no running water, one room, and no place to store them away from kids. You know, I can tell you, I don't have time to tell you the whole story right now, but. This hits home with me when I had to spend about an hour and a half in the back of an ambulance trying to put charcoal down in uh, a piece of IV tubing into a four-year-old's stomach uh, on the way to a hospital in, in San Roque de Copan. Uh, it's real. Don't let it happen. Uh, there's no point in it. It doesn't make sense. We wouldn't give medicines out in Ziploc baggies here in the United States. We can't do it there either. Medication should only be prescribed when absolutely necessary. And remember, in child-resistant containers, not Ziploc plastic bags. Remember that there are no double, double standards for patient safety. Safety that exists in developing countries, or safety standards that exist in develop, developed countries also exist in developing countries. The other thing to think about is think about your pharmacy. Do you really need what you're taking? Uh, how much of it do you really need? You, we take minimal. We can take mebendazole, vitamins, um, vitamins, vitamins. I mean, <laughs> that's really, and a few antibiotics, and that's it, because really we don't need to be giving them anti-inflammatories. They don't know how to take care of it. And if you take the uh, blood pressure medication when they run out, what's going to happen? So, you know, you really need to think about it. Keep it at minimal. Some, you know, two to five is all you really need. Yeah. Uh, just to add on to that, you can't really treat chronic disease in a short-term medical mission team outreach. I've seen a lot of teams try to give out uh, long-term antihypertensives and all kinds of stuff. And unless you're work, if you're working as part of a existing health program, remember what I said at the beginning, I said a lot of these problems, 95% of them could be eliminated if you were just working as part of the existing health program, uh, that's why we exist, is to try to help connect you guys to those programs. But, uh, you know, keep that in mind. If you're going to try to treat, I wouldn't treat that stuff if, I mean, it's really up to you as physicians uh, and nurses and nurse practitioners. And, but trying to treat chronic disease from a short-term outreach is, is probably not a good plan. Treat the cute stuff. Treat the stuff that you know, how to, you know, that you know you're going to make a difference in. Uh, and when I, you know, that the last thing it said, treat only what's absolutely necessary. Really, only about 20 percent, 10 to 20 percent of those that we see really need medicine. But everybody wants to give them something because they want to feel like they came away with something, you know. And we've just got to be careful about the amount of pharmaceuticals that we distribute, how we distribute them, and and just think through and think about the safety end of it. That's all. Uh, <laughs> This is, this is one of the WHO patient safety standards that's within the context of the I, IMCI. And you'll see this is 
almost impossible to do in a centralized pharmacy. We recently did this, and it works amazing. And we thought that, oh, there's no way. We're never going to see as many people as we normally see. This is going to take forever. Actually, it is extremely time effective, and we saw more than we normally do. At each station where uh, the licensed professional went to the pharmacy, got the medication, and brought it back to the table with the translator and um, the patient, and they verbalized the medication instruction, demonstrated the measuring of the dosage, had the mother do the dosage right there in front of them, administered the first dose of medication under the supervision of the professional right there. We just did it all at one time. And then um, we had her repeat it back. I don't know about you, how many times have you had to say to your child, now what did I just say to you? <laughs> we had them do that. We didn't do it in that way, though. Um, and then explain. We had to teach them how to open and close the container. They have no idea what a safety child lock container is, so you have to have the translator, or if you're, it's in an English country, you can just turn it and show them that you have to explain how to do it. And you also have to explain that that medication needs to be kept in a very safe place. This is not the norm for them. They're not used to that. They're used to getting Ziploc baggies. So we have to try to teach them. Uh, or they get the little blisters. I don't know if you've been down there. They get a lot of little blisters. But they still need to keep all of that in a safe place. So we have to educate them. I mean, education really is what we want to think about throughout everything that we do. Uh, this is another one because pharmacy pharmacy areas tend to be the place where we stick the non non licensed people to uh, you know to oversee the the packaging and dispensing of medicines. You know, sometimes there'll be a nurse there. Very rarely is there a pharmacist. I mean, that's the ideal of uh, we, we want to have a pharmacist with us if possible. And, and why do we drop all the standards that we would never be able to practice without here? So we've got to think about that. And uh, even if there's not a pharmacist with you, these medicines should only be dispensed by licensed personnel in not in zip containers, obviously. Uh, and then that privacy consultation area. We, the, the private consultation area we handled by doing what Candy was saying, send the provider to the pharmacy, fill the prescription, have the provider take it back and, and teach mom. Worked great, you know. Uh, it's not – the other option is if you want to have a central pharmacy, send them to the central pharmacy, but they have to go to a private consultation area in order to get the education. But you can't do it in front of 50, you know, 50 people mom's trying to hurt her kids and keep them from getting lost in the crowd. Okay, next presentation. The medical team arrived in a Honduran village in response to an invitation from a local pastor who organized the church for them to use as a clinic. The team saw patients all day long and had to turn some away. One of the translators, a local Peace Corps volunteer, needed a ride home and was picked up by a friend. A young woman holding a baby wrapped in a blanket was also in the truck. After getting into the pickup, the volunteer asked to hold the baby. The mother replied only by asking if the volunteer was working with the medical team that day. It was then that the volunteer realized something was terribly wrong. The mother told her that she had waited in line all day for the doctors to see her baby. She was too far back in the line and did not receive care. It was then that the volunteer realized the baby had died. The local public health clinic was only two blocks away from the church where the medical team was serving. I can't say triage enough. 
you know, you've got to go through that line. A medical licensed personnel has to go through that line over and over and over all day long because people come in that weren't there in the beginning. It's, that triage is extremely important to prevent things like this from happening. Well, the sad thing is, too, that, you know, that there is a functional health system that should have been part of what was happening there that day. And that health system, had they been approached and said, you know, they 99% of the time they're very happy to, to work with these types of programs, but you got to talk to them. And, and if you don't know they're there, you can't talk to them. So if someone goes back again, goes back to community assessment. This one, a plastic surgery team, was working in a rural hospital in Central American, uh, in the Central American country, Honduras. Uh, the, the fourth patient of the day was a 16-year-old girl. Uh, she, uh, I, I don't even remember what case they were doing on her, but she had a hyperthermic reaction and died. That's the key point of this. Uh, that's a bad outcome that can happen in anywhere. Okay. Problem is the public health director of the region learned the situation was extremely upset because the team had never been credentialed to work in the region. After discussing the issue with the local police chief, of a decision was made to arrest the surgeon anesthesia provider for practicing medicine without a license in that country. Remember that people can't come here and practice medicine or nursing without a license. We have to know the credentialing process for those countries. And uh, if you're interested, if you go to the best practices website, uh, Peter Jorgen wrote a great paper on you know access and and there's there's a pretty good growing data bank. But through the Ministry of Health, it's probably the only for the way you're going to get that information. Well, you know, if you're providing surgical care or you're working with a foreign counterpart to build their uh, programs, knowledge, and experience, you know, what kind of partnerships can you develop in that thought process? You know, how is follow-up care being provided to the patients that you treat? I've seen many instances, in, uh, specifically in Latin America, where surgical teams come down, they leave, they never set up any follow-up care. These, you know, in fact, I remember one specific, this kid had an eye infection that was after, after surgery. Of, that was just awful, and there was never going to be any saving that eye. But there was never any connection. Because they weren't fully connected with the health system, there was never any ongoing care for that patient, and that needs to happen. And we need to be, especially with surgical care, there needs to be, you need to be part of a, a functional health system and know that there's going to be competent follow-up care. Now, despite all the health care mission's problems, Short-term healthcare missions hold significant promise to build capacity and help communities respond to their own health needs. It's not all bad. We just need to be responsible in how we think about how to do it. Uh, we've only begun to explore the vast potential for short-term missions to engage in health education and prevention. And there's so much more that needs to be done there. Uh, we tend to lean towards this model. There's a lot of other ones. This is called, you know, just a community health fair. It's widely used by public, U.S. public health departments and, you know, in Canada, throughout the U.S. Uh, it, it's, it's a good way to provide uh, you know, health, health education, do basic screenings, and some basic primary care. And, and it's a wonderful model because you can even set up teaching stations if you choose to, and there's all kinds of creative ways to do it. But it's probably a far more effective of medical outreach model than, than some of what we've you know, been doing in the past.
when you talk about health education, I'm just going to repeat this from our last, so excuse me for those who are seeing a double slide. Uh, WHO recommends four general health education interventions that have been proven to reduce child mortality. They are care-seeking behaviors of parents. Okay? We want mom to know when to bring the child to the clinic. That's pretty important, especially what things are, are life-threatening with that child. Uh, we, nutrition, maternal and child, home management of diarrhea and dehydration, and malaria prevention in those areas that are there's a high prevalence. You know, for the longest time, Greg would talk about WHO. I'm like, oh, it doesn't have anything to do with short-term missions. And now that I've been doing it in short-term missions, it's huge. I mean, the community that we saw had so much malaria. We treated three severely malnourished children that we put in feeding programs. But the key to the whole thing is, is you've got to be plugged in to that community more than just going in and doing your wonderful deed of being a, having a clinic. You have to be plugged in so that it continues on. Medicine has to continue on. Yeah. I, going to the next slide, which is uh, WHO recommends five general pre uh, prevention and treatment interventions, immunizations being one of them. Now, what happens is there's often a breakdown in, in what we call cold chain. In other words, uh, end distribution point for immunizations is really difficult sometimes in rural developing communities because there's no way to keep those medicines refrigerated. Uh, we at least want to track, you know, from a short-term perspective, in that community, we want to know how many of these kids are immunized. So using that piece of paper that I gave you, you can also go on our website and you can download the whole IMCI chart book and all of the paperwork that you would ever want in this regard. It'll help you track what kids have been immunized and how much. And now if I can, you know, if you say, okay, I've, I've only got 15% of the kids in this community have been immunized, now you've got hard data. You can go to the health community, you know, the health community there and say, what can we do to help you with this? Because they all have access to the immunizations, by the way. I don't know how many know that, but government immunizations are are widely available through government hospitals and through local, you know, even mission hospitals. They all have access to immunizations. The problem is getting them to the end point of distribution. So oftentimes, if you can help them do that, they are they would love to work with you. Uh, Anti-helminth prophylaxis, we all do this. We give them parasite medicine, almost everybody. But I don't, not too many know about the last two. Zinc supplementation for all kids with diarrhea and iron supplementation and specifically vitamin A supplementation. WHO recommends all kids get w, vitamin A supplementation to the tune of 100,000 units for less than 12 months and 200,000 units for 12 months to five years. Every six months. That's a lot of, you know, a lot of vitamin A. How many, time, how many people have done that? <laughs> okay. Good job. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's rare. You can get a multiplied vitamin A. You can get it off the Internet. It's Emulsified liquid vitamin A drops. They're 20,000 international units per drop, and it's about 20 bucks per container if you can't get them overseas. You can usually buy them in country, depending upon the country you're going to. But if not, they're, you know, it's, you know, it's great, and you should be giving all kids. The, the, the other thing I have to tell to qualify that is that you have to let the, the health service know you're doing that uh, in the region so that they are aware that these kids have gotten, uh, if you were there and if they were seen at your brigade, they got, you know, they got vitamin A supplementation so that the health system knows that. Uh, but that's, you know, it's been proven to reduce in, in child mortality by 23% in these communities. So it's something we should be doing along with the parasite prophylaxis. Iron supplementation is something we're going to give for kids that are anemic and in kids with uh, uh, malaria. 
But again, all the training program is on our website. If you have any questions, I'd love to connect it with it. I don't want to repeat the last one we just, the last uh, uh, workshop we did. These are just some other brief ideas on, you know, other things you can do in the community other than general primary care. You know, primary care can be a component of all of these things, but any of these are sometimes more functional than the traditional pharmacy-focused missions. Does that make sense? Okay, just to conclude, uh, healthcare missions exist to facilitate and encourage physical, emotional, and spiritual health. See, God intends us, he he does, I I really believe that. He intends for all of us to use our abilities to care for the poor, the underserved, but in a way that respects human dignity of his children. And uh, I think that, if you can take away anything here, uh, I pray that you'll take that away say, you know, let's just respect the dignity of the health care providers that we're working with there. Uh, and we want to find them and we want to work with them. And then we want to respect the dignity of those we care for. And uh, we want to just do it in a responsible way that doesn't cause harm or cause problems. Okay. Any questions? Is there a way to know if you're volunteering with an organization if they've gone through these steps? I mean, we're not going to know if there's a position to block the way Oh, I wish there was. Uh, That's a good idea. (laughs) We're actually, you know, we're working on a group called the Center for Health and Missions. uh, And and that's kind of a core group of folks at this conference that have kind of come together to try to, it's a center for him, the way I think .org, and it's still got a long way to go. We're just in the infancy. But the idea is to kind of be a standard of excellence board for short-term teams. Uh, and, and be able to provide that kind of direction and oversight. But a lot, I'll be honest with you, a lot of teams don't want to accept these standards because I'm going to say something maybe not so politically correct. Nice. <laughs> a lot nice. of teams don't want to accept the standards because a lot of their, their revenue in order to focus, uh, in, in order to function, in order to focus on these problems is derived from the short-term team members. And And... So select an organization. If you're going to go on a short-term team, select the organization carefully and just know that they're a little bit longer-term focused and, and maybe connected to different facilities. World Medical Mission for uh, Samaritan's Purse, I recommend them highly. Recommend us, of course, because we're going to try to plug you into a functional hospital and health program rather than send you out with a team to kind of work independently. Does that make any sense? And we don't, you know, we don't, if, I send, if we send you to a hospital, we don't get anything off of that. We just want to make the connection so that you can practice this and you can, you can do what God has called you to do in a very responsible way. Yes? Thank you very much for that resource. Did everybody hear that about EMSA, the, the Medical Student Association? Is that right? Okay.
discussion with Dr. Ramsey's also had those people on medication before they showed up to see you. We have seen that so many times where we find out later that, you know, we switched to medication. This was before we started practicing safely. That, you know, hypertension medication, we put them on, and he had been on one all along, and we didn't know it. I mean, what if they take both of them? That's just, yeah. That's why we say don't take anything and don't treat those kind of things, but have Dr. Hernandez treat that kind of stuff. A lot of these people will, if there's any kind of government program in the country, will be carrying a little bit of cardboard. Absolutely. If you go, I don't know if you, did everybody get this handout? Yeah. This handout, we got the list of questions that we went over in the presentation, but on the other side there's a list that Dr. Arnold Gorski, also in the best practices group, came up with just to kind of make sure we think through the potential impact of medicine in communities. And it's kind of, it's why patients are at much greater risk for serious harm from drugs and short-term missions. And it's a worthwhile read. It's only, there's only 16. There's actually his, the whole paper that this came out of is on our website as well. And, you know, you'll find it in our book, and there's a lot of other little stuff in our book. If you want a copy of it, just let me know. Yes, sir. I'm wondering about what WHO has to say about alternative medicines in other countries, maybe more specifically with which doctors, or like those sorts of like ties in the community that can be very present. I'm working with those as well. How do you do that? And does the WHO have anything to say about it? Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure they'd want to work with us. You know, I think there is some literature out there on community providers, and it's very important with programs like maternal health training and birth attendant training programs that they work with traditional midwife providers because they have the credibility in the community. And you don't want to be perceived as subverting that authority. There is some literature out there that WHO has proposed, but that's not one of the 100-page papers that I felt compelled to read. But they're out there. Do you know with your WHO statistics of 125 deaths per day, is that third world countries? Is that mission? That's not necessarily. That's total toxic for developing nations. Developing countries, yes. Yes, sir. I think one of the fundamental things that I've run into and I've been on pretty short-term trips is that there's a divide between action people and detail people. And I kind of walk that line. I want to be there and I want to be active, but I do get troubled on the field by certain things. But that, you know, when you're in place and you've got whatever it is, I can help this person. I've got the resource. It's very difficult to deal with the action-packed, you know, individual who says, you know, just get them in here. We can help them. Get them in here. Let's get it done. You know, and it's very difficult when you find yourself in that position. I think you're totally right. The time to ask these questions is before you go. But honestly, to answer all of these questions, I don't know how many teams could leave 
from this conference, it might be zero. I mean, honestly, it, with all of these questions answered, maybe you guys have figured out how to send out got to share with you that it's not a, it's an ongoing process. Yeah. Nobody's going to have the answers That's to these questions. The but, but it's more about answer, asking the questions and saying, well, is in, in this one area, is there room for improvement? How can we get this thing called medical missions better? And there's a lot of questions I threw, threw on that list. And a lot of them are, are way beyond our control. But they're something that if, if we're aware of, we begin to ask the questions. Yes, sir. One thing we may be forgetting is that we have a huge opportunity to teach the locals how to continue doing the kinds of things that they can do with their own resources that are likely prevented. And we have an opportunity to teach them how to do discipleship and evangelism at the same time. If you put those two things together, you have a better chance that people are going to be willing to volunteer, a better chance that local churches will be willing to be involved, and a better chance that they'll be willing to tell other communities what they know. So you have a much better chance to multiply if you're willing to really make this a holistic intervention rather than a physical health only intervention. I, that's amazing because that's exactly how we feel about it. Um, education is the best thing we can give. We have a lot of knowledge. And when we were in our discipleship training in Mercy Church, someone said, knowledge is accountability. We are accountable to share our knowledge and, and our love of Christ in any way that we can. There's great CHE programs out there that can help with that continuum. We're big components of CHE. We just love them. Uh, Stan Roland, I don't know if you love him. <laughs> I had to give my hug. <laughs> but just to hook up with those programs, the education programs, use your translators, use your orphanages, anybody that you can that's willing. You know, and the other people that love to continue on with education are educators, your teachers in the community. If you can get them willing to volunteer and work with you, that's another source of continuum in the whole process. Anyway, I think we'll have to call it a day, but I want to thank you guys and uh, just say we're here to be a resource for you guys. Anything we can do to help you, just let us know. We're here. Okay? God bless you all.